Good morning, church. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 2 is where we're going to be. And while you're turning there, I just want to draw your attention to um, one thing. We have a, a book sale, a special book sale today, and there'll be a table out in the, the foyer. Um, and all the items on sale there are for today only, that sale. And one of the books there we just got recently for our kids, it's called The, the Big Wide uh, Welcome. It's uh, based on James chapter two, on the issue of favoritism. Uh, and really, every time I read the, a book to my kids from, from this series, it, it brings me to tears. So if you're a parent, I would rush out there after the service and, and grab a, a copy of this or other books on special there. Right, James chapter two, we're gonna read together from verses 14 through to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for, needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the de demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab or not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we come again to your precious, your vital and life-giving word. We come to a passage that is got parts that are difficult to understand, Lord. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open up our hearts to receive the message that you have for us today, that you would build your church, that you would strengthen our faith and our love for one another, we pray. Amen. Um, years ago, at another church, a, a, starter, a couple started attending church and they were uh, engaged and living together. They came to an understanding of the gospel and were saved. And soon after that salvation, an elder met with them and discussed with them their living arrangements. And this couple were surprised to learn what the Bible had to say about it. Immediately they separated out of repentance and they stayed apart until they could be married. The faith that they had recently professed had traveled from head to heart and they desired sincerely to obey their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That may not have been the case for another girl I knew who had professed faith throughout her school years. She was a part of her church's worship ministry and spoke regularly about the grace and the favor of God. And she started sleeping with her longtime boyfriend. She continued to serve at church, continued to speak of the grace and the favor of God, but slowly drifted away from those who might have something to say about her choices in life. Is her faith genuine? Will her confession unite her forever to Christ? There are many who live in the church and agree with the central doctrines of the faith. They know that we're all sinners and they understand the gospel, how it's Christ's death and resurrection as the only remedy of our estrangement with God. They're fine to read and to talk about spiritual things. They're pleasant people and nice people and seem to live decent lives. And when you speak to them, they sound like believers, yet their lives are not marked by distinctively Christian self-sacrifice, no costly obedience, no evidence of a true submission to Christ as king, submission to scripture. What is to be made of their profession of faith? This is a question that James deals with throughout the letter, and today he states the point quite starkly up front. He asks us a question in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that faith save him? Seems to have been a real issue in the church in the first century, and it's a real issue in the church still today. As we come to this passage, I need to acknowledge that it is a difficult one to preach, a difficult one to interpret. It is a very debated passage, and James speaks quite starkly here. And if you take what he says, some of these statements out of context, it can seem that the Bible contradicts itself, doesn't it? It seems on the surface that maybe James is saying something opposite to what Paul wrote about, something opposite to our very understanding of the gospel of Christ. I want to show you the statements together. James 2.24 and Romans 3.28. I think there's a slide. James 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Romans 3.28, Paul writing, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So some have claimed here a contradiction in scripture. For as we approach this passage and answer the question, how are James and Paul to be reconciled? I'm gonna lay my cards on the table. I'll provide a foundation right up front. Right up front, I believe we have a biblical assurance in coming to study the passage, and that is this, that the Bible does not contradict itself. The Bible doesn't contradict itself, so there can be no contradiction here. Secondly, we have a gospel foundation as well. Paul's teaching that we are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law is the very foundation of the gospel. To say otherwise is to deny the doctrine of substitution and to lose the heart of the gospel. We've got to get the gospel right. The truth of our standing before God on the basis alone of Christ's life and death. It is vital for our hope our joy and our service. It's the truth that we don't contribute even one iota to our salvation. 
And that truth is not an impediment to obedience, real obedience. Rather, it's the peace-giving, rest-promoting, joy-inspiring foundation for a life of love lived out to our Savior. When God looks at us, despite our weakness and our flaws, our recurring sins and the wanderings of our heart, when He looks at us, He sees what Christ did on our behalf, the perfection of our Savior. When he calls us, it's to a permanent relationship as adopted sons and daughters. And when he loves us, his love doesn't grow dim or burn brighter because of our performance. In Christ, God the Father will not love you any more or any less tomorrow. And when this truth digs and settles into your heart, it produces a righteousness deep within. So for the sake of our joy and our holiness, we must fight the inclination to works righteousness that I have to earn the approval of my God, that I have to earn salvation, earn my place in the family. No, we push all of that away and we rest in Christ, knowing that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So how do we reconcile James and Paul? I'll answer that as we unpack this passage. Right up front though, even in verse 14, I wanna highlight something that is quite key. Look at what he says again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Someone says he has faith, but there's no evidence of that statement, that confession. Can that kind of faith, whatever that is, can that save him? James is not saying that faith doesn't save. His point in this passage is that there is a true faith and there is a false faith, a dead faith, a useless faith. And true faith shows itself always in good works. There's a saying that captures James's point well. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. Paul is in agreement with this. Galatians 5 verse 6, Paul says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Faith and works go hand in hand. James loved the same gospel that Paul loved. And so his aim here today is not for our gospel foundation to be shaken. His aim is, however, for introspection in the church, for us to analyze Examine our hearts. The same introspection that Paul called for in the book of Second Corinthians. He called them, he says to the church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. That's the aim that James has. For both James and for Paul, faith is trusting God and obeying God. So if you don't trust him, Don't seek to obey him, even though imperfectly in your weakness, James would say your profession of faith isn't true. He makes this point in several different ways. Faith is useless, he says. It cannot save that kind of faith. It's dead. He makes the statement five times, verses 14, 17, 20, 24, and 26. And then in between those five statements, there are four illustrations. James wanting to drive the point home to our hearts. And so what we're gonna do now is look at those illustrations one by one as we open up our hearts to James's message. Number one, the first illustration is the illustration of the well-wisher, the well-wisher. 
In verses 15 to 17, James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The poor person here is a Christian who is destitute. When James says they are poorly clothed or poorly dressed, it doesn't doesn't mean that they're wearing off off brands. He means what they have is inadequate for the purpose of keeping warm. They're lacking in daily food. They are too poor to be able to afford sufficient food. And then another member of the church comes along, polite, with a warm exterior. They have the means. They're well positioned to help, but in their hearts there is no real concern. I see you're cold and hungry. I pray God would provide. Go and be warm and well filled, fed. That's just adding insult to injury, isn't it? It's no better than saying, oh man, you you look cold, you look hungry. If, If I were you, I'd find some better clothes. If I were you, I'd find something to eat. Might as well say, I I pray God feeds and clothes you for I certainly won't. This person doesn't need those well wishes. Doesn't need the wishes, the empty promises of prayer. They've been praying and God is expecting that this other person coming along would be an answer to that prayer. All I wanna say here, because we've spoken in a few passages before about our duty to those who are poor, I wanna highlight again, James often is is borrowing from Jesus when he teaches, he's echoing Jesus. And in Matthew 25, Jesus makes the point that if you love your king, you love those in need. Love for the king is shown in mercy. He speaks in Matthew 25 of a, a final day, a separation between the sheep and the goats. And those who inherit the kingdom prepared for them, he says, from before the foundation of the world, Jesus says, are those who fed him when he was hungry, gave him drink when he was thirsty, welcomed him when he was a stranger, clothed him when he was naked, visited him when he was sick and in prison. And they ask on that day, when did we do all of this for you, Lord? His answer is, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. But in answer to the dead faith that does not result in deeds of love, Christ has this warning. Matthew 25, 41 to 43, then he will say to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. James agrees with Jesus. The point is this. If you have tasted the goodness of Christ, if you have tasted the grace of God, your heart is transformed by that grace, and you love God because of his grace, and a love for God means an act of love for his people and for people. Faith that is alive is a faith that works. It works itself out in deeds of mercy and grace. It works itself out in forgiveness and compassion, in gentleness and patience. All of those deeds of joy rendered by the one who knows and has tasted God's own love for them. 
So that's number one, the illustration of the well-wisher. We see number two, the illustration of the demon, the demon. James is anticipating an argument by this point, the argument of to each his own. So he says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You have faith, I have works. So some Christians are, this is the thinking, are maybe the the mental kind, the thinking kind, the cerebral, the getting doctrine right kind, and then there are others who are practical, hands-on, doing rather than reflecting kinds. You have faith, I have works. You do you, I do me. James says, show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He's making the point that you cannot divide the two. You cannot separate them. Faith and works go hand in hand. They're like the two wings of the same bird. A bird cannot fly with only one wing. The bird soars, however, when both of those wings are pumping in concert together. So it is with faith and works. Neither of them, listen to me, neither of them is authentic or true before God without the presence of the other. This is James's point. Let me give you another Simple analogy, I've heard it said something similar to this. You walk into church with a friend and you're standing next to your friend during the time of singing, but when the time comes to sit, the the preacher stands up to preach, you sit down on your chair and your friend carries on standing. And you look up at him to see what's going on, you say, take a seat. And he says to you, "I I think I'll rather stand, thanks. So you look, you see, want to see what's wrong with the chair next to you, but you see it's like all the other chairs in the church. There's nothing wrong with it. So you say to him, are you, what are you worried that it won't hold you, you joke? But he squirms a little bit and says, no, I, I believe it will hold me. Then sit down, you say. He says, I, can't I just, let me just stand. I've been through some stuff with chairs in my past, all right? And so you say, well, you can stand, but it's weird. And this is a Baptist church. He's long-winded. He chooses to preach whole passages that he should have split in two. And you're going to get tired. Why not just sit? Don't you believe the chair will hold you? Well, well, I I do. What's it made out of? It's a steel chair. You're going to be fine. Sit down. This is James's argument in this passage. He's saying, take a seat. Faith works itself out in action, an act of trust. When we trust in Christ, we can see it by what we do. Now, a clever person might say, look, I believe the physics. I understand it's a steel chair. I believe that it can hold me. I don't need to sit down to believe. What he has is a mere intellectual assent to the facts of the truth. And James is ready for this line of debate with his illustration of the demon. He makes a point here that there is a head knowledge that some call faith, an intellectual assent to correct doctrine, perhaps without the appropriate response of the heart. Intellectual assent to doctrine is not the same as saving faith. So he says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons are monotheists. They're Trinitarians, all of them. They're smarter theologians than any of us in this room. They know scripture probably better than any of us in this room. 
They acknowledge the truths of the great creeds and can quote them. Jesus is God from God, light from light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. They know the truth and all that this truth brings them is fear. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know the truth, but they do not Love. They know more than the believer, but they know nothing of the hope that fills the believer's heart. They know nothing of what we wait for on that final day. They cannot fathom it. Demons remained, remain hell-bound despite their orthodoxy, and James's warning here is clear. The same may be true of men and women who know the truth, but that truth does not change the way that they live. What is the verse that James quotes here when he says that what the demons know, the truth that they know? It's Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And what is the response to that truth? The very next verse, Deuteronomy 6 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Your trust reflects in the way that you think and the way that you act and what you do. Now, James's purpose here is not to create fear in those whose faith is real, but it is to create, lips, uh, to create introspection, sorry, in those who merely pay lip service to Christ as king. It is the cold heart that James wants to defibrillate in this passage. So the question is this, do you love God, do you love Christ? That, by the way, is the difference between the demon and the child. The demon has terror and hatred, but the child has hope and celebration. True faith flows from this. It's the perfect love that God has for the child that has been poured out into our lives, and that perfect love casts out fear. That love grants peace and it creates a capacity and a willingness, a desire in all things, even though we are weak, to obey. And where our faith may fail and our works are weak, our response is not fear, it's not hopelessness that would call into question the wonderful mercy of God, it's a clinging to that mercy. Our response is hope, it's just desire. Our Father, grow me. Sanctify me, be glorified even in my weakness. It's a desire that tomorrow oh, his law will just shine more brightly in my heart. Our response is faith. As John Newton put it, this is the wonderful freedom we get to live in as Christians. I'm not what I ought to be, I'm not what I want to be, I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still I'm not what I once used to be by the grace of God, I am what I am. And having given these examples, these two examples now of what faith is not, James continues with two more illustrations. He knows our hearts are hard. He doesn't assume that the penny has dropped. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so he follows those negative examples with two positive illustrations to bring this point home. So number three, let's look at the patriarch, the patriarch. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father 
justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's that controversial line. I've got, I'll put it up again. See the two verses next to one another, James 2.24 and Romans 3.28. How do we reconcile now? Let's look at this. I believe it helps to go back to Genesis and to look at Abraham's life, consider his story, because when Paul writes that and when James writes that, both of them use Abraham as an example, an illustration in the point that they're making. So in Genesis 15, Abraham is speaking to God in a vision and he's questioning again the, the promise of God and God reiterates the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse five. He brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then the words that follow are crucial, not just for Abraham's life, but for all of scripture. Genesis 15 verse six, and he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's not that Abraham didn't struggle after that to believe the promise of God. Right after this in Genesis 16, he's trying to take matters into his own hands and fulfill the promise through Hagar, the, the servant of Sarah. Later on, he would laugh when the promise was reiterated because um, Sarah had grown so old, way too old in human perspective to have a child. But in this moment of belief before God, his belief, it says, is accredited to him as righteousness. So in Romans, Paul uses this verse when he makes the point that works do not save you. Works do not justify you. Romans 4, two to three, he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So now James is not ignorant of this initial moment of justification. In our passage, he does lay the same um, significance on Abraham's belief. In verse 23, he quotes the same verse and the scripture was fulfilled. That says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness and he was called then a friend of God. James sees in Abraham's belief the same significance that Paul does. But James is focusing on another chapter in Abraham's life, another declaration that God makes about Abraham, and that's in Genesis 22. This is after decades of waiting. God finally provides the son of the promise, Isaac, and humanly speaking, all of the promises God made to, to Abraham depended on that one boy. And so probably the most shocking command in all of scripture is given to Abraham. In Genesis 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Sometimes we just read quickly through that, right? We don't comprehend, cannot comprehend what it means to have to obey a command like that. 
We even dehumanize the characters. We shouldn't do that. When we come to the story, we should try to feel maybe what Abraham felt in that moment. And walking towards the mountain, he leaves his servants behind. He walks with Isaac. Isaac is realizing something is amiss. We have the wood and the fire. Where is the lamb? Choking back emotion, Abraham must say, God himself will provide the lamb. They get up to the top of the mountain. They construct the altar and still there's no lamb and comprehension dawns for Isaac as he submits to the will of his father and is bound. Can we even comprehend it? Abraham's brokenness, his tears, the sickness in the pit of his stomach as he lifts the steel, lifts the knife into the air and poised to strike, to kill his only son, a voice pierces his darkness, Abraham, Abraham, and calls him back to life. And God makes this declaration about Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 12. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's not that God didn't know, right? God knew his heart. He knew the trust that was in Abraham's heart every step of the way, something that the author of Hebrews reveals in Hebrews 11, that Abraham considered God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. He had faith. God knew his heart, but he waited for this moment for the sake, I believe, of Abraham and for this validation of his faith. Alec Matea writes something very insightful in his commentary here. He says, we know, of course, that the Lord did not need this process of validation. He knew from the start, but he is represented as needing it. He is depicted as if he came to a final decision about Abraham's faith through observation of Abraham's works. And he graciously condescends to be represented to us like this so that we can share his point of view. A true faith produces results, and in particular, the result of costly and holy, trustful obedience to the word of God. And then says Matya, it fell to James alone in the New Testament to bring out this total view of the faith of Abraham. So it's two different chapters in Abraham's life, an initial declaration and a final declaration So Paul and James are not in disagreement. When they speak of justification in this passage, they are speaking of justification in two different senses to correct two different problems. Paul speaks of justification in the initial sense, in the court of God, where in that moment believers are justified the moment they believe. They trust in Christ. Their sin is laid on Christ. His righteousness is imputed to them. They are saved by what Christ has done. And James uses justification to refer to an ultimate verdict on the last day where faith will have been shown to to have manifested itself in good works and vindicate, vindicate God's declaration that we are alive in Christ. Both Paul and James's teaching are vital for our lives. Paul must speak to the, the one who works and works and works and can never rest, always wondering, have I done enough before my father? Have I done enough to satisfy him? 
To them, Paul's saying, stop, stop striving. It is all and only Christ's work or nothing at all. And James must speak to those who think that God's favor is theirs, but who live with a dead and a useless faith, a faith that is exposed by the absence of any evidence that they trust in Christ, any evidence, any deeds of sacrificial love. We put our faith in Christ alone to save us, but saving faith always works itself out in the love that we have for our King. Finally, and very briefly, one more illustration, one to grip our hearts, there's the prostitute. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It is just wonderful to me that right next to Abraham in James's depiction of stellar faith, faith is Rahab the prostitute. You're a Jewish Christian in the first century and somebody is making an argument about what faith looks like. You expect the patriarch. You expect to see Abraham there. There are songs about Father Abraham. There are no songs about the prostitute. And yet, you read the New Testament, doesn't her name keep popping up again and again? In the lineage of our Lord in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter one, she's part of the Messiah's line. She's mentioned here in James and in Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith. She was a nobody from a doomed Canaanite people and she wasn't even a second class citizen amongst her people. She was nothing more than an object to be used and discarded in their eyes. What had happened to Rahab? What had happened to her that got her to this point by the time that God got to her? You don't just become a prostitute. Evil, deplorable things have to happen to you in your life until you believe deep in your soul there is no one and there is nothing that is gonna stand for me. My only hope in this world is to become hard to the horrors of life. She begins to catch wind of news, a coming army, maybe from the merchants and the businessmen who frequented her house. She senses their fear. She hears what this Yahweh has done for his people, what he has done to his enemies. But when the spies come into her house, we don't see that same fear in Rahab. There's a different kind of fear, a fear that's filled with hope. Trust me and hide them, Rahab, with great risk to herself and to her life. Rahab, used and abused her whole life, puts her trust in someone she believes will not use her and discard her. Remember me, she says to them, when your God gives this city to you. She plants her flag in the ground. It's a scarlet cord hanging from the window. Proof of the vitality of her faith. She offered her house, her resources, her safety, Rahab's faith speaks down through history to us today. It says this, if I give him my all, if I place my life in his hands, I will not be put to shame and he will not let me down. Rahab took a seat in the chair. As I close, there are different ways to respond to this passage. 
Some Christians with a a tender conscience may tend to concern and maybe you struggle with the assurance of faith. If you are a believer, a child of God, it is not the point that you would struggle with assurance. The final word must never be despair or the questioning that leads to a, a, a state of hopelessness. This is you, you go to the cross. Go to the cross and see the perfect submission of the Son of God for you, his willingness to be bound by the Father. No thought of escape. He was the Lamb. He was God's provision. Complete, perfect, whole, worthy, without spot or blemish. His work never to be added to. That is your foundation. Behold the one who suffered in your place, who offers his sacrifice once for all, and who the author of Hebrews says is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God in him. Others may rush past this passage. Think of some of the good things they've done and check off the James 2 box. Brush past the need for introspection. Give no prayerful examination to the heart. Don't let this be you. It is easy to grow up in the church and know all the jargon, to know what to say and when to say it, to know how to toe the line, but there be nothing more than an intellectual assent to what scripture says, nothing in your heart. If this is you, you stop, pause, come, come to the foot of the cross. Lift your eyes to the king who wore a crown of thorns. Consider carefully the words that we sing. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And finally, there may be some who reach the conclusion, I don't think I am in the faith. I'm not actually in the faith. And that may seem to you to be a terrible realization, but it actually is one of James's points, isn't it? It is a starting point. It's the one you need. The Spirit may be drawing you to the place where the blindfold is finally removed. You know the jig is up and your need is clear before you today. Come to the cross. Call upon the name of Christ for mercy if you believe that this is you. For if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10 verse nine. Let's pray. My Father, we just wanna pause And we want to express to you the gratitude that we have for the mercy that you showed in sending our Savior, Jesus Christ, to die the death that we deserved. Oh Lord, we could never, we could never earn salvation. We could never earn what Christ has done for us. We could never earn your favor. We know ourselves. We see your holiness. And we know that we fall so far, so infinitely far short of your glory. So Jesus, we thank you for your perfection. We thank you for your submission and your life that was lived. We thank you for taking our sin, our estrangement from the Father, 
and for nailing it to the cross and giving us life. Lord, I pray through your spirit that you would speak to each of us as we need to to understand what this message means for us, that you would apply it. Lord, I pray that if there are any who have been living with a false faith, a dead faith, nothing more than intellectual assent, I pray that you would dig the truth of this passage into their hearts, that you would save today, Lord. I pray that you would convert, for only you can do it. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.